Thank you, Michaela, and good morning again, church. So good to gather with you this morning. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, I'd encourage you to turn with me to Romans chapter 16, which is where we'll be uh, considering verses 17 to 23 this morning. I went back and checked, and as of last week, it's actually been exactly two years that we have been journeying through the book of Romans together, and what a journey it has been. Um, I'm so privileged to be able to uh, help conclude this series as Pastor Tim will come back next week and finish us out with the doxology here in verses 25 and 26, Uh, but this morning we will be considering verses 17 to 23. And remember, this is a letter. When Paul originally wrote this, there were not chapters or verses or headings or even necessarily paragraphs that distinguished between the text. It was a single letter written on a single scroll delivered to the churches of Rome. Because of this, nothing in in this section of the letter is new. Think about when you write a letter to someone else. You don't go and teach new things or say new things at the very end of the letter. You're kind of wrapping it up. You're reminding them of everything that you've talked about already, encouraging them, saying your final greetings or hellos or goodbyes. That's what Paul is doing here. There's nothing new that he is teaching through this, but rather exhorting the churches, encouraging them, and reminding them of the doctrine that they have been taught. So if you have your place with me in Romans 16, verse 17, let us pray this morning before we dive into our text. Father God, we thank you so much for your goodness, for your faithfulness, for your mercy, for your love. Lord, I pray that you would uh, reveal to us yourself and your nature this morning. Lord, be with us as we walk through this text together. Father, guide my my tongue and my mind, and uh, may everything that I say be coming from you and glorifying to you. Father, open our hearts and our minds to what you would have us learn from this. Help us to apply it rightly to our lives because of the right doctrine that you have taught us. It's in Jesus' name that I pray these things. Amen. The word of the Lord through the Apostle Paul. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus greet you. You may notice that there is no t- verse 24 in the ESV. Now, if you're using a different English translation, you might have a verse 24. What's the difference? Well, the ESV used earlier manuscripts, earlier original manuscripts, whereas others did not. And because of this, it was not found, this verse was not found in these earlier manuscripts, which is why it does not appear But I want to break this passage into two parts this morning. And and I think that we'll find that two points are each pointing to one main theme. In the first part, in verses 17 and 18, we see an exhortation of warning. 
In the second part, verses 17 through 23, or 19 through 23, excuse me, we see an exhortation of obedience. Both of these exhortations are pointing to one main theme that we actually just sang about. Hope in the victory of Christ. Oh, glorious day that the Lord is returning. One day he is coming, and coming soon, as we see in verse 20. And as Matt mentioned, between the the second song and the third song of that last set, what are we doing in the meantime? That is the question that we seek to answer together this morning. So I have two points for us as to what we should be doing in the meantime. First and foremost, we need to avoid the wolves. Avoid the wolves. As Paul appeals to his brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions, create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught, encouraging them to avoid them, we, we see that these false teachers, these false prophets, are truly wolves. We get this terminology of wolves from Matthew 10 and Luke 10. as Jesus tells us that we are sent out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Matthew seven fifteen. Beware of the false prophets who come to us in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous as wolves. Let's examine some characteristics of these wolves so that we we know exactly who we are talking about. First and foremost, they create divisions. In the Greek, this means to make stand apart, literally to separate. Rather than bringing people together, these wolves seek to divide the family of God. Secondly, they create obstacles to faith. Again, in the Greek, this is literally to lay a snare As Michaela was talking about fall and we have the autumn night coming up for the ladies, I know that fall is a very good time for many of us and I know that many of you will be disappearing more and more into the woods as it is hunting season. And and I'm no hunter, but if my knowledge is correct about hunting, when you lay a snare for an animal, it's not for the benefit of the animal, right? In fact, you're luring them to their death, now, for those of us who like meat, praise God for his provision. But, but it's not for the benefit of the animal. It's not, it's not supposed to help what we're trying to ensnare. Wolves will create obstacles. They will lay snares for us. And, and hunters, you don't want to, to make the snare or the trap look unattractive, right? You want to lure them in. You're going to put out carrots for rabbits. You're not going to put out, I don't know, like raw meat or something to drive them away. You want to lure them in. We need to watch out for these traps, for these snares. Thirdly, wolves are selfish and self-serving. They serve themselves rather than the Lord or others. They are encouraged by their own appetites. This phrasing is also found in Philippians chapter 3, verse 19, where Paul is talking about these wolves, saying, Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. These people do what they want rather than what God wants them to do. Through manipulation and flattery, they impose their desires upon others, seeking to glorify themselves rather than the God who made them. Fourthly, they are deceitful through flowery speech. They're seeking something for their own gain. You ever have that that one person who always compliments you and then immediately asks you for something? Like, it's not wrong for us to compliment people. It's not wrong for us to ask others for something. But if the only reason that we're complimenting someone is so that we can get something out of it, that's a little deceitful. 
See, we're called to love others because of the, the interest that Christ has in them, not for our own personal gain. Lastly, these wolves, as we see at the beginning of verse 19, the obedience of the righteous is known uh, to, to Paul and the others. The disobedience to God is what characterizes a wolf. John 14, verse 5, Jesus tells us that if you love me, you will obey my commandments. You will keep my commandments. To love God is to obey him. I, I would strongly argue that the world has this idea of love very wrong. Acceptance without truth is not love. Intention without action is not love. Doing good without the gospel is not love. And all of these things can be good, right? We, we want to welcome people where they are, accept them for who they are. We don't want to judge them or cast them out because that is who God has made them to be. But we also want to speak truth into their lives. As Ephesians 4.25 says, putting aside all falsehoods, speaking truth into one another's lives so that they may be glorified by our Lord and then they may glorify him more rightly. The purpose of, of Paul describing these characteristics here is so that we can have an awareness of who these wolves are, so that we can rightly avoid them. We need to watch out for them so that we can avoid them. I want to give you, instead of just characteristics, some even examples of what this might look like. Second Peter chapter 2, verses 1-3 through three gives us a good picture. As Peter writes, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow in their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. In their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So, so when we talk about wolves, what are we really talking about? Anything or any one that would deny the authority of the commands in Scripture. This is including but not limited to denial of the full divinity and full div humanity of Christ Jesus. Those who would promote a works-based salvation, not, not sufficiently uh, was Jesus' work on the cross, they would say. The pursuit of self over the pursuit of God. Expressive individualism, the, the idea of follow your heart, be who you want to be, not who you were made to be. The idea of living your best life now, specifically the, the name that comes to mind with this would be the teachings of Joel Osteen. T.D. Jakes, Benny Hinn, Kenneth Copeland, the concept of name it and claim it, expecting God to give you what you want solely because you want it. I hate to tell you, but that's not what that verse means when God says he gives us the desires of our heart. As we are being made like Christ, as we are following in his footsteps, our desires become his, not the other way around. Promoting, affirming, and encouraging the beliefs and the ideologies of the LGBTQ community. Advocating for abortion rights, denying the sanctity of human life. This is not my opinion. This is the word of the Lord who tells us these are the wolves we are to be on the lookout for. I was having a conversation with a friend early this week leading up to this, and, and the concept said, he said, it's better almost to have no theology at all than to have theology that is bad that leads to death, thinking that it leads to life. Don't be 
fooled by these false teachers. That is why that we have Scripture in our own language, so that we can look at it alongside of one another. And Paul is not angry with the church. Again, look at the context of this. As Pastor Aaron preached last week, we had 16 verses of greeting, welcoming, saying hello, encouraging one another. So when he, when he comes to this verse and we see, I appeal to you, don't mistake this as a warning, like get your act together. Something that we might see in like 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians. This is a context of love and encouragement. The word appeal, even in the Greek, parakaleo, means to exhort, to encourage, literally to call to one side. Come alongside of me as we do this together, doing life together. Paul is an encourager by nature, constantly commending others in the church for their obedience to the Lord. The idea of positive reinforcement. Our our culture is one that is really good with negative reinforcement, you know, like don't do that, try better next time, this needs to be done differently. But how good are we at positive reinforcement? Hey, good job on that. I don't need to tell you good job, but I want to tell you good job. How many of us, just like show of hands, how many of us feel encouraged when, when people encourage us, how many of us feel good about that? Yeah, especially those of us who, who have words of affirmation as a love language, right? It's like an extra helping almost sometimes. Think of the golden rule, though. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. If you want to be encouraged, go find someone else to be an encouragement for. By encouraging one another, though, we strive to do more with the variety of giftings that God has given to the church, Think back to to Romans 12 and the gifts of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, the metaphor for the body. If we're missing a hand, rather than going and telling a hand that's disconnected from the body, hey, you need to come back, you need to come back, you should be doing this. Instead, encourage them. Encourage other parts so that the whole body functions better together. I think of the old saying, you'll catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. In order to encourage one another, though, we need to be present in each other's lives. In addition to being on guard, avoiding the wolves that would lead us astray from the doctrine that we have taught, our second point this morning is to accompany the family of God. We need to accompany the family of God. To be clear, I'm not talking about accompany in the sense of coming alongside because you are not a part of. I'm talking about coming alongside and joining in, being involved, getting connected and doing life together. We need to be on guard, for sure, but we also need to be active in our obedience to God. When Paul says that we ought to be obedient, we ought to be wise to what is good, innocent as to what is evil, he's saying that we need to encourage the truth in one another's lives. And there are times that we can't do this on our own. There are times that we are blinded to our own sin. We need others to speak into our lives, to come alongside of us. This is why we need to be accompanied by the family of God. Now, what does it mean to be obedient to God? As I mentioned before, to love God is to obey him. And we don't want to be driven away by these false doctrines, contrary to the doctrine that we have been taught in verse 17. Where do we get this? God's word. The gospel accounts, the Old Testament law, the the prophecies of the prophets, even the first three quarters of the book of Romans— Paul is laying out the doctrine, the teaching, the doctrine of what we should believe as believers. First three quarters of that is him laying out the doctrine. The The last quarter of that is him explaining practically how to do this. 
we get to this list of names in verses 21 to 23, and as Pastor Aaron rightly said last week, sometimes we just kind of gloss over them. If you're anything like me, you read these names, and you were like, oh, I recognize Timothy. That's about it. <laughs> no, Timothy, Jason, Lucius, Sosipater, Tertius, Gaius, Erastus, and Cordus. Cordus and Lucius are probably the two that we know least about. Simply that they were kinsmen with Paul, brothers in Christ. They're encouraging him. Jason, though, we come across a Jason in Acts chapter 17, verses 5 through 9. When Paul was on his missionary journey and came to Thessalonica, Jason housed him and his entourage. Paul went to the local synagogue, proclaimed the gospel of Jesus, as was his custom. But we get to verse 5 and listen to this. The Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out into the crowd. And when they couldn't find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. They are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. The people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. It's quite possible that Jason was actually socially exiled from his hometown because of the gospel proclaimed through Paul. Having nowhere else to go, he packed up his things and followed Paul to Corinth on his missionary journeys. So Sipater, we, we read about right after this in Acts 17, verses 10 through 12, where Paul went and proclaimed the gospel in Berea. And similar to Jason, as Sosipater came into a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ because of the testimony of Paul, he too packed up his things, traveled the world with Paul so that he may be an encouragement to other brothers in the faith. Tertius is a pretty interesting one. We see I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Now, 99% of scholars would not argue that Paul did not write this letter. They would say that, rightly, that Paul wrote this letter. Tertius was just the one who penned it. But what's interesting about this is that in, in this culture, scribes were not well-known. They weren't published. They weren't popularized. It was the one who did the dictating that was published. And yet this just goes to show us the characteristic of remarkable equality in Christ that is seen throughout Pauline Christianity. Gaius might be my favorite one in here. This is quite possibly the same Gaius that we read about in 1 Corinthians 1, chapter 14, when Paul is saying that he is glad that he did not baptize anyone in the city of Corinth with the exception of two people, Gaius and one other. Now, if, if this is true, and remember, Paul is writing the book of Romans from Corinth. He's living in Corinth while he's writing to the churches in Rome, and he's saying that Gaius is host to me and to the whole church. Imagine that. Went from being baptized to, to being a church hoster. In our day and age, we might call that a church planter. The gospel is working through these brothers in Christ. Now, if you're, if you're sitting here thinking, I could never do that. Like, that's way out of my capabilities. Or maybe you're saying, well, I've been a Christian for 20 years. Why am I not a church planter? Don't be discouraged. God has you where he has you for a reason. I would encourage you, get involved in serving. It does not have to be saying, you know, I, I need to go start a church because I've been here for X number of years. 
but get involved in serving in the church. Again, there's probably a 10-year gap between Gaius coming to faith and being baptized and then him hosting the church. This isn't an overnight thing where he was baptized and as soon as he came up, he said, I'm going to Corinth to plant a church. Don't be discouraged where you are in your own faith. Lastly, Erastus, the city treasurer. What an interesting role. He would have been in charge of overseeing the finances for the city of Corinth. As we read in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, we know that Corinth wasn't the most righteous of places. There was a lot of pagan practices, a lot of pagan worship. People would come from all over to visit the temples and sacrifice to the Greek gods. One of the most famous was to go to the oracle at Delphi. And just think of the oracle of Delphi as kind of the most famous fortune teller in the entire known world. People would come from all over to hear what the gods have planned for their lives. With them, they would bring gifts, offerings, sacrifices of gold, of silver, of fine, fine uh, appliances, if you will, like vessels of gold to hold things. Erastus would have been in charge of overseeing these. How difficult would that have been to, to take someone's pocketbook, literally, their entire life savings, dedicating it to a false god when, when he himself knew the true God? On the other hand, though, what an opportunity for, to be a witness. What an opportunity to tell people, hey, you're, you're sacrificing to the wrong God. Don't do this. He appears in two other places in Scripture, Acts 19, verse 22, and 2 Timothy 4, 20, as a fellow worker with Paul. The faithfulness of this brother, surrounded by sin, paganism, weird practices, and yet he is faithful to the work that God has called him to do. God chooses to use all kinds of people in all kinds of positions, occupations, and manners in order to further his kingdom. How blessed are we that he has chosen to extend this great grace to us. That he would look upon us and our sin and our shame and our, our brokenness and say, I want you to be my messenger. Praise God for his unconditional love and mercy. These faithful believers who are with Paul in Corinth doing the work of missionaries and evangelists are sending their greetings to the churches in Rome. Which brings us to some characteristics of those in the family of God. And I'm going to go through these very quickly, so you might not get them all down. But we see in verse 19, we are to be obedient. We are to be wise to what is good. We are to be innocent as to what is evil. Because of our fellow brothers in the Lord and the testimonies that they have, the examples that they have lived, we are to be hospitable, encouraging, bold, humble, servant-hearted, generous, present in the lives of others, and faithful. Remember, verse 19 is not a humble brag saying, we know of your obedience because you sat around telling us about it. It's your obedience is known to all because of your faithfulness, your consistency, a consistency that makes others aware of their obedience through humility and their service. We should be rejoicing in the obedience of others. What are some examples of this? The first one that came to mind was King David. A man after God's own heart, as we see in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14. Paul, excuse me, Paul even. 
1 Corinthians 11, 1. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Jesus, our ultimate example of the characteristics of the family of God. But how about within our own body? What does this look like? Who can we actually look to living this out right now? I think of our deacons, the, the servants of the church, those on the parking team, Rob Femley, Dave Gray, Denny Marconi. Praise God for their faithfulness to where we haven't had an accident in our parking lot. Those who keep us safe while we worship on a Sunday morning, Corey Beaver, Tim Owens, those on the paving project, Scott Heckman, Jared Simcox, Brian Seigen, their faithfulness in, in making this a better place for us to come and worship. Thank you for your service. Serving the body through working on the building, Scott Weaver has made the youth center look completely different than what it did, as well as the front entryway and the columns on there. Helen Barrett's faithfully cleaning the church so that we can have a, a clean space to come and worship our God in. The gentleness and the welcoming spirit of our greeters in the greeter ministry, led by Tyler Seigen. The wisdom and goodness. I, I can think of no better example than Art and Linda Gray. The encouragement that is exemplified by Craig and Kimber Brady. The hospitability of Julie Borges and Susie Gray. The generosity of Ron Hayfley and Linnell Galt. The boldness to share Christ in spaces where we are of Mark Lowen. These are faithful brothers and sisters who are good examples for us to look at, to follow. This isn't an exhaustive list either. There are many, many more names that we can put on this list. Many of you that we could take the entirety of our time together this morning rejoicing over your faithfulness. I think it's cool too that there are many names that we don't necessarily associate with a specific role. And, and, and that is solely because of the humility of those in that role. We praise God for you as well. Changing gears as we go back to our question, what are we doing in the meantime? What is our ultimate hope? These two points point to the main theme in verse 20, that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under our feet. The purpose of these final instructions to avoid the wolves and accompany the church is to be alert and ready for that day that is soon coming. This phrasing, the God of peace, appears seven times throughout Scripture, twice in the book of Romans. And adjectives like peace, we don't typically associate with verbs like crush, right? It's kind of not right. Like if somebody says, yeah, I was sitting alongside a peaceful river the other day. We don't picture like a 10-foot tall wave just rushing across right in front of them. Or if the, the wind is peacefully blowing through a field of corn or wheat as it is harvest time. We don't picture 100-mile-an-hour winds of a tornado crashing down and cutting through a field. See, the difference here is when we say the God of peace, we're not talking about inaction. We're talking about action, preparation. I think of the words of Theodore Roosevelt, speak softly and carry a big stick. The intention isn't that you have to use the stick, but you will if you need to. Or how about the words of Tony Stark in the first Iron Man movie? Pastor Tim's not here, so I can get away with talking about superheroes. <laughs> Tony Stark says, the, they say that the best weapon is one that you never have to fire. I respectfully disagree. I prefer the weapon you only have to fire once. Two things with this as we point this back to our text this morning. First, God's power and authority over Satan is complete. 
There's no need to fire twice, so to speak. This isn't some end-of-the-age battle for la- lasting for millennia upon millennia. It's, it's a constant struggle between good and evil. No, God exercises his power and Satan is defeated, period. Secondly, this defeat is inevitable. It isn't something that may or may not happen at some point in the future. We know that the future is sure, that God is victorious, Not just because he promises it to us. All the way back in Genesis 3, verse 15, which is where this phrasing comes from. When God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, I don't get into fights often. But in this case, I want to be the guy with the bruised heel. Not the guy with the bruised head. In in no fight is the guy with the bruised head ever the winner. God will crush Satan. In fact, Jesus has already defeated death when he rose from the grave. He went into that tomb a dead man, and three days later, he was raised again to new life. He's conquered death. He's broken its chains so that we too may have new life everlasting in his name. Because of this, we can draw near to the holy places of God, open to us through the curtain that once held our sinful selves back with a full assurance of the faith that we have, holding fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. This is our great and steadfast hope. This is what we wait for. You want to know how the God of peace is going to return? Look at Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16, to see this great peace John writes, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse sitting on it is the one called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. His head, on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of peace and comfort and love and gentleness and mercy for all of those who would receive him. But he is also the God of righteousness, of holiness, of justice, who does not let the evildoers go unpunished for their rebellion against his perfect law. We deserve this wrath, this punishment, for we too are not without sin. But God made a way for us to escape this punishment, to have everlasting life with him. By believing in the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, by believing that he died on the cross to bear the punishment that we so rightly deserve for our sins, he justified us, making us right with God. And after Jesus died on the cross as an atoning sacrifice for us, he rose from the grave so that all who call on the name of the Lord for salvation may be saved and have everlasting life. This is the gospel, which we must firstly believe for ourselves. We need to avoid the wolves. We need to accompany the family of God, his church. And to do so, we must apply the word of God to our lives. First, we have to believe in the gospel. One of the first things that Jesus says in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, is that the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. 
Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We must believe that for ourselves. Secondly, we have to write it on our hearts. Don't just know it, live it. Psalm 119, 9 through 11, specifically verse 11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Deuteronomy 11, verse 18, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 33, where the Lord is making a new covenant where he takes his law, he takes his commands, and he writes it on our heart. He will be our God and we shall be his people. Thirdly, we need to exhibit the characteristics of the family of God in our own lives. Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Against these things there is no law. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you say the day, drawing near. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17 Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. While we await the return of our Lord in hope, this is what God has commanded his family to do. Avoid the wolves. Accompany his church. Apply the word to our lives. Let us be faithful in what he has commanded us to do. God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that you would magnify it in us, that we would make much of you in our lives. Father, teach us and show us the wolves that are surrounding us in our own lives, that we may be faithful not only to you, Father, but in our own families, in our own homes. Lord, that we would be faithful to obey you and you alone. Father, give us opportunities to serve alongside one another as you have called us to do. Give us the strength and the encouragement, the wisdom to do so. And God, let us not stray from your word. Father, teach us to write it on our hearts that we may not sin against you. We thank you for your son, Jesus, and the fact that we get to remember his sacrifice on the cross today. Father, we pray all of this in the matchless, resurrected Christ. Amen. Pastor Aaron will now come and lead us in a time of communion.